Well, we are in 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16 together. And as I alluded to in the children's message, uh, this particular passage that we'll be looking at and studying together has a hymn in it, okay? It has a, a song from way, way back when in the scripture this morning, and we're going to take a look at that, that particular song. But uh, before we do that, let me just open up by saying this. You know, I, this week I began thinking through songs, uh, hymns, and, uh, and I was kind of asking myself this question. I said to myself, which hymn do I believe will continue to impact Christians uh, as well as even non-Christians uh, in the future, you know, in the next 50 years, 7,500 years, what, what song, what hymn do we sing today will carry on and impact lives in the future? Now, I'm going to guess that you all probably have a favorite song, a hymn, that you think will probably carry on and impact lives in the future, and you're going to be right, okay? You're going to be right. Uh, when I was thinking about ans and answering that question, here's, here's the song that came to my mind. I think a song, a hymn, that will carry on, that will uh, transcend uh, culture changes and will transcend time, is the hymn, Amazing Grace. I think that's going to continue on. Uh, listen to that first verse. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now am found, was blind, but now I see. I believe that hymn will continue to linger and impact lives for ages to come. Well, this morning we're going to look at a hymn together, a hymn that has transcended time, becoming one of the pillars of the church. Uh, we may not know the tune to the song. We may not know what the title of this particular hymn is. But this hymn has truth and theology that is the bedrock of the church. And we're going to take a look at that together this morning. So take your Bibles and join me in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we read verses 14 through 16 together. In this particular passage, as I read, again, we will be reminded of the purpose of 1 Timothy. Remember, 1 Timothy wrote this particular book. With, I shouldn't say Timothy wrote it, but Paul wrote this particular book with a, uh, a purpose in mind. And, of course, Paul's purpose in mind was to bring instruction on how to do church. Remember, we are in a series of messages. What does the church look like? How do you do church? And, of course, 1 Timothy gives us guidelines and gives us uh, instructions on how to do church. And so here in verses 14 and 15, he lists and gives to us the purpose of this particular letter that he wrote to Timothy. And so beginning in verse 14, we find these words. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. And here we come to him. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, 
was seen by the angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Here ends the reading of our passage this morning. So verse 16 is a hymn from the past. This is a, a hymn that was sung way, 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 way back when uh, these particular words were written. And, uh, and these words have continued on and are recorded for us in Scripture. And this hymn is loaded with great doctrine, great theology. And we're going to explore that together this morning. So as we begin to look at this passage, verse 16 says something that's very interesting uh, and maybe somewhat kind of confusing as well. Listen to verse 16. It says this, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Now, as 16 is read here, I'm sure you're wondering, okay, mm -hmm, what, uh, what is being said here? It is kind of a mystery, right? We're trying to figure out, okay, what is Paul trying to tell us? Well, in order for us to understand verse 16, we need to define a term, and that term is the term mystery. So we're looking at the word mystery. What does the word mystery mean? Well, the word mystery is defined as this. It refers to something previously unknown, but now made known. That's the mystery. Something that was previously unknown, but is now made known. It's something that was hidden in the past, but is now revealed today. And so here in verse 16, the Apostle Paul, who is the writer here, he's alluding to something that was a mystery. It wasn't really understood. It wasn't revealed in the past. But he's telling us now that it has been revealed. It has been exposed for everyone to see, hear, and understand. And so what is that that's been exposed? What is that that has been revealed that was once hidden? Well, we're going to use Scripture to kind of define this mystery. What is this mystery? Well, we're going to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to use again Scripture to define and help us understand what this mystery is. So we're in Ephesians chapter 3 now, and I'm going to be looking at a number of verses here. We're going to kind of skip through Ephesians chapter 3, but to begin, first of all, in verses 2 and 3. And so we're now at this point defining uh, biblically uh, what this mystery is. This mystery, that which was hidden in the past, which is now revealed. So that's what we're defining. So what is this mystery? So beginning in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2, here's what it says. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. Jumping to verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Now to verse 9. Paul says, And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. God's intent was that now... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here in Ephesians chapter 3, what we really have taking place, uh, he uses the word this administration. 
He's saying something new has taken place or is taking place. Okay? The mystery that was hidden in the past is now being revealed for us to see, to understand, as well as to participate in. And what is that mystery that was hidden in the past? The mystery is, the mystery is this. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That is the mystery that was hidden in the past. If you go back and explore the Old Testament, you read how the, the prophets and the people of old, they anticipated, they looked forward to that which was to come. They didn't completely understand it, but they looked forward to it. Now, as we move into the New Testament, a new administration has taken place. That which was hidden in the past is now being revealed. And what is being revealed? What is this mystery that is being defined? It's being defined like this. There is life and there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We're talking about the gospel. That is the mystery that is now revealed to us in the New Testament and that which the church is to proclaim. That mystery is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 3 in 1 Timothy, what we see taking place is that this mystery is recorded in a hymn. And as I was sharing with the young people, and as you know, tunes, those tunes, they get in our head and we play them over and over again. For me, it was my lighthouse. I mean, I've just been singing that all the time. Well, here in, in Scripture, we have a hymn. And this particular hymn was sung by those people of old and in that hymn, they had great theology. They had awesome doctrine that taught about Jesus Christ. It explained to them more fully the mystery that was hidden in the past, which is now revealed. And that mystery is that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners such as I. So let's now move on and talk about this hymn and see what this hymn has to say. As I said, this hymn is full of theology. It's full of doctrine. And when we talk about doctrine, we're talking about the teachings regarding God. Uh, this particular passage here in verse 16, this hymn and its stanzas communicate wonderful truth. So we're just going to break it down. There are six stanzas in this hymn. All right, we're just going to break it down. We're going to work through each stanza, and each stanza communicates a wonderful theological truth or a doctrinal teaching regarding Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at this hymn. First of all, the first stanza or the first phrase is this. He appeared in a body, or he was revealed in the flesh. Uh, here we have a reference to Jesus Christ. He was revealed in a body. Um, we go back to John, John chapter 1. It says this in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as we move down in that first chapter of John, we come to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So here in this first stanza of this hymn in 1 Timothy 3, we have doctrinal teaching, theological truth about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who was God, took on flesh and he became a man and he dwelt among mankind. Came across this quote in my study this morning or this, this week uh, by, the, by, a, by the, a man by the name of Larry Richards. I know I don't know him and I'm sure you probably don't know him. But he says some great things about this incarnation of Jesus taking on human form. 
He says, the doctrine of the incarnation is distinct and unique to the Christian faith. Many religions, of, um, many religions speak of appearances of deities in the guise of men or animals. But these are just appearances only. None takes the startling position of Christianity, which affirms that the God who existed from eternity and who created all things entered his creation to actually become a human being. What this gentleman is telling us, we, as we follow Christianity, we have a unique truth, a unique element to our faith. And that element is this. God, the creator of the world, took on human flesh and he came and he dwelt among us. That is being... Uh, appearing in the body. Let's go on to stanza number two. It says this, he was vindicated by the Spirit. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Now we come to a word again that we don't actually always use in our conversation. Vindicated. Have you used that term lately? Vindicated. What does vindicated mean? Well, literally, vindicated means to be justified or declared righteous. Okay? To be justified or declared righteous. So when Jesus came to this earth, remember, Jesus, he didn't come as some king, you know, uh, with all the, the uh, fanfare that comes with being royalty. He didn't come that way. Remember, Jesus came as a servant. He came to serve. He took a lowly form of a servant. Thus, the ministry of the Holy Spirit was to declare Jesus to be the righteous one by attesting to his deity. So what does this vindicated by the Spirit means? Well, it means that the Holy Spirit has declared that Jesus Christ is God. That's what it means. He's, he's been declared righteous. The Holy Spirit has done that. For example, uh, in Mark chapter 1, we have these words. And uh, this was uh, referring back to when Jesus was baptized. And Jesus come up out of the water when he's baptized. Here's what Mark says. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Here we have the Holy Spirit, again, authenticating, declaring the deity of Jesus Christ. So also, when we press on in the, with the life of Jesus, um, remember Jesus, he went to the cross. And of course, he did that for each one of us. Uh, he was humiliated, and he died a horrible death. Uh, he was numbered among the transgressors, it says. But the Holy Spirit declared that Jesus is the Son of God by raising him from the dead. Jesus didn't just stay dead, right? He came back to life. And here's what Romans chapter 1 says. And who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what we have in this particular hymn and this stanza where it says he's vindicated by the Spirit, basically what is taking place is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is making proclamations, is affirming the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed deity, that he is indeed God, and that was proclaimed and authenticated by the Holy Spirit. Again, that's part of the hymn that we're studying this morning. First, he, uh, he took on human form, that is, uh, and he dwelt among us. And then he was vindicated, or the Holy Spirit authenticated his deity. 
It says, too, on the third stanza is he's beheld by angels, was seen by angels. The angels, of course, had an interest, uh, interesting part uh, in Jesus' life. It began with his birth. So we see the angels involved in Jesus' life from conception to ascension when he returned to heaven. Let's take a look at a few of those examples. Uh, first of all, in Luke chapter 1, uh, we are told these words, and this is from you know, Mary's conception, and it says this, But the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus. And again, remember, we're talking about he was seen by the angels. In other words, the angels were involved in Christ's birth, okay? Uh, in addition to, uh, uh, you know, the angel appearing to Mary, uh, the angel also, angels also uh, appeared to the shepherds in proclaiming the birth of Jesus. Uh, when Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he came out and he was tempted. But it says also that the, the angels ministered to him after his 40 days of fasting. Uh, also, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was betrayed and uh, entered into, that, uh, into Good Friday and so forth, it says that uh, the angels came and strengthened Jesus. And then lastly here, we have the resurrection. And uh, when people ran to the empty tomb, whom did they encounter when they ran to the empty tomb? Such as Peter and John and so forth. They encountered angels, didn't they? They did. They did. Here's what Mark 16 says. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he says. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. He is not here. So he was seen by the angels again, the angels affirming and proclaiming that God indeed, or excuse me, Jesus indeed is God in the flesh. Moving on to stanza number four. Proclaimed among the nations, it says. Proclaimed among the nations. After the resurrection, uh, the Lord Jesus made it very plain and very clear to his disciples that the job is just beginning. Okay? The job is just beginning. So we go to Matthew chapter 28, and we have the marching orders for us individually as well as the church. And here's what the verse says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Again, Matthew chapter 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third dead according to the Scriptures. This is the message that we proclaim to the nations. Number five, he was believed on in the world. This is the only means that God has ordained for every person around the world to receive the gift of eternal life. What does that mean? We must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. And lastly, our sixth stanza of this particular hymn says that he was taken up 
in glory. He was taken up in glory. This refers to the bodily ascension of the risen Lord. Acts 1 says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Taken up, to, up into glory, Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father with all the authority of heaven and earth. And as the angels promised, one day he will return to earth in the same manner that he ascended. He will return visibly, bodily, in power and in glory. The hymn of the church. This particular hymn, well, let me back up. Why, why this hymn? Why would uh, Paul include this in his writing? Remember, again, the purpose of 1 Timothy is to bring instructions for the church. You know, this is how you do church. This is what church is all about. That's what 1 Timothy is telling us. And so why does he include this stanza, or these stanzas, these six stanzas from an old hymn? Well, first of all, this hymn communicates wonderful truth theologically as well as doctrinally about Jesus Christ. But I think one of the reasons that Paul included this in his writing because this is the song of the church. This is to be our hymn of proclamation. Now, I'm not saying we sing this song, and I'm not saying we you know, develop some kind of a tune for this song. But what I think it is, it's saying here is the message and mission of the church. We as a church, we're learning how to do church. What is our church to do? We are to proclaim that Jesus Christ came into our world. He took on flesh and he lived among us. Why did he do that? So that he could give his very life as a sacrifice for our sins. So that those who will put their belief in Jesus Christ will experience life eternal as well as forgiveness of sin. You see, that is the hymn of the church. That is the song of the church. That's what we are to proclaim. Because it's only belief in that message that people will one day experience and live with Jesus Christ. You see, it's a foundational truth that we are to communicate as a truth. And that's why, in my opinion, I think Paul says, he puts it as a hymn, because people remember songs. This is what the church is about. It's about Jesus Christ, him crucified. He was dead, he was buried, and he came back to life. And because he lives, we too shall live. It's the song of the church. And that should be our song as well, as we seek to honor and glorify God with our lives and we as a church body. Let's pray together. God, once again, thank you so much for saving a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I I see. That is the truth you desire your church to proclaim now and forevermore. Help us, Father.
and that mission. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.